The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Luke 16. Luke 16. Don't need much of an intro to this one. It's a message on money. It's a message on money. It's a message on money. So we're going to get right to it. How's that? How's that for an intro? Let's get right to it. So the Apostle Paul wrote this. Obviously, we're going to be in Luke 16. We're going to hear what Jesus has to say about this through a pretty interesting parable, actually. Uh, But let's listen to what the Apostle Paul said, first of all, uh, because this is going to set us up well. He said, and this is a familiar um, phrase, um, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, the love of money, through this craving that some have A, wandered away from the faith, professed it, said they were Christians, but then were so enamored by the money, they wandered away, and secondly, pierced themselves with many pangs. I'm not not even really sure what that means, but it doesn't sound good. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't sound good. And so to this point in our study of the Gospel of Luke, what Paul wrote there really is beginning to kind of make its mark in our life because uh, to this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has mentioned, referenced, used examples of money, possessions, wealth about 15 times. And so it's obviously important that we get this and uh, that we spend some time talking through all of this. And I know some of us don't like all the talk of money that happens, but here it is again in the gospel. And Jesus is going to conclude today's parable with an inconvenient truth that you cannot serve God and money. And we need to hear this. There's perhaps no more reliable barometer. Listen now. There is perhaps no more reliable barometer of your spiritual health than how you handle your money. If you want to find a way to determine just how spiritual am I? How close am I to Jesus? How well am I doing in my walk with him? You really only need to look as far as how you handle your money to figure that all out. And in today's passage, Jesus Jesus tells a parable about a dishonest manager who was shrewd, that's an important word in this um, message, he was shrewd in the handling of his money. And despite his obvious faults, he was dishonest after all. He set an example for you and me in one very important way, and this is what Jesus is pointing out in this parable. He looked ahead to see how he was doing with what he had in order to prepare for himself a great future. And that was going to make a huge difference to him down the road. And for us, what we're going to see in the parable is that how we spend our money today has eternal implications to us. Eternal implications. And so let's read the text together and then I'm going to pray and we'll begin unpacking it. This is Luke 16, the first 13 verses. You got it? Everybody got their Bibles open? You ready to go? If you're ready, just say ready. ready. Okay, here we go. It's Luke 16, 1. And uh, speaking of Jesus, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to him, so what shall I do? 
Since my master's taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg, I've decided what to do so that when people, so that when, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Uh, bless this time, Father. We, uh, we would pray and ask you to meet with us, to speak to us. And Father, I know that many here, as we look at this topic again, have already kind of set their hearts and minds to the principles we're going to look at. They're living these things out already. They're faithful to you. For many here, it'll be a reminder, a reinforcement of a truths already known and, and applied. Some, though, Father, have slipped a little bit. Father, this will be a callback. For some, this may all be new. And God, I love that your Holy Spirit can meet us right where we are, could do a deep work in each of our lives and bring about the change that's necessary. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get, uh, let's get to this then. Um, we'll start with one crisis. I've left you a full few bullets there to fill in. Let's fill those in. Uh, uh, one crisis that everyone will face. Here it is. Uh, nothing in this life lasts forever. And nothing in this life lasts forever. Now, as we read the parable, uh, just to uh, kind of go through the character list a little bit, um, there's uh, three main characters. There's the rich man, also called the master throughout the parable. There's the manager uh, in the parable. He was uh, hired, uh, but also fired, hired to run the master's affairs. Uh, he had uh, signing authorities. He was responsible for negotiating contracts, all of that. Uh, but he was fired because he wasn't doing a very good job. So there's the rich man or the master, the manager, and then there's the debtors who had some kind of a business arrangement with the master, with this wealthy landowner, and each of them owed a sizable debt. In fact, uh, to look at the debts, they probably owed debts that were maybe uh, a year's worth of earnings, and so sizable debts. Now notice verse 1. Uh, charges were brought to the master. People said to him, your manager is wasting your possessions. And um, he was given all this responsibility, provided all of the resources, and evidently he was squandering them and not serving his master very well. Uh, maybe he was uh, thinking uh, with whatever he was doing, he was thinking, you know, I'm in a pretty good place and it doesn't really matter so much and my master is wealthy Maybe he was just sloppy, not very good at his job. I don't know. Maybe it was intentional. But for sure, he probably had it in his mind 
that the gravy train he was on was going to keep on going, that he had a good thing going and nothing was going to stop that. No one was going to find out that he was wasting it all, but the master found out. Verse 2, we're not told how. He goes to him and he says, what is this that I hear about you? Then he fires him. Turn in the account of your management. You can't be the manager anymore. Tellingly, the manager doesn't dispute any of the charges which lead us to believe that he actually is guilty. He was actually doing all of this. Now, two things as we look at these first couple of verses that point to this idea that illustrate the crisis for us. The crisis is that nothing in this life lasts forever. Notice uh, that he was wasting the possessions, and possessions are so easily wasted, aren't they? The possessions we buy, in fact, are all rather consumable. They come and they go. We can squander the use of them uh, so easily. Nothing in this life lasts forever. Notice also that he could no longer be the manager. Jobs don't last forever. Some of you know that full well. Nothing in this life lasts forever. For each of us, the misuse and the misallocation of money and all selfish and careless spending in our lives is a wasting of possessions. This point shouldn't be so hard to believe. We're a room full of uh, smart people. We should understand this already. No one should have any trouble understanding that money doesn't last and possessions don't go with us into eternity. We should all be very quick to acknowledge that. I would say especially those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we should get this right out of the gate. But, but the reality is that we don't believe it enough some of us don't believe it enough to actually change the patterns of behavior and the decisions that we make about money, about possessions, about wealth. This is why it's a crisis even for some who are followers of Christ because we, we say we profess faith in Christ. We say that we know these things don't last forever, but then we make decisions that indicate just the opposite, like we're really just investing in this life. We're gripped by money. We're gripped by having it. We're gripped by wanting it even if we don't have it. And I need to say it again because of all of that. Nothing in this life lasts forever. You can't take any of it with you. I was thinking about a great way to illustrate this and it came to mind again about, you know the story of King Tutankhamun, okay? He lived a little while ago in Egypt. And, um, but you know, like when he died, and he was, I think, around 18 years old when he died, they, they packed his tomb filled with things that he was going to need, according to the Egyptian mind, what he was going to need in his afterlife. They filled his tomb. In fact, this is what they, some of what they found. Packed in like a warehouse. All these things that he was going to need in the afterlife. Thousands of years it sat there. In 1922, they found the tomb in the Valley of Kings. They went in, and guess what? It was all still there. <laughs> he didn't take any of it to the afterlife. It all just stayed right. You can't take any of it with you. Listen, it all just stayed there. You can't take any of it with you. Nothing. Would you, would you believe it? Nothing in this life lasts 
forever. And when we accept that reality, notice this next, there are two possible fixes to the crisis. Two possible fixes to the crisis. The manager knows that the day of reckoning has come. He's faced with his own crisis. He throws his hands in the air. Verse 3, it says, what shall I do? What am I going to do now? He's desperate. He, He knows. I identify closely with this guy because at this point he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. <laughs> I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. And, and he knows he's in a crisis. How's this gonna go for him? What am I gonna do? I have no money, I have no job. And what do any of us do when we come to the realization that nothing lasts forever? What course will our life take? And there's really two options here. Option number one is to continue to foolishly waste your possessions on temporal pleasure. And this is the program the manager had been on before he was fired. This is, this is um, we could, we could uh, say this various ways, but this is the philosophy, the, the Latin phrase, carpe diem. This is the philosophy of seize the moment. It is the philosophy of hedonism. It is a pleasure before everything else. I'm going to live for pleasure. It's uh, what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'm going to live it up now because this life is all there is. Since nothing lasts forever, I'm going to spend it all now on me. And um, it, it just makes sense. If you don't think there's a heaven worth getting to, then that's going to dictate the very course of your life and you're going to live for now. It just makes sense. This isn't really the way that a professing follower of Christ should live. And yet some will fall into this as well. And there's a little bit of hedging here. I profess Christ. I I say that heaven is my hope. But I just want to, I still just want to be comfortable here. And I, I want to set myself up here. I know it's going to be awesome then, but I'd like it to be pretty awesome here now too. And by that I mean having possessions and having things and being secure. We give the impression by how we spend and what we have that this life is all there is. We speak of heaven, but the evidence isn't there. And we need to ask ourselves some questions in light of this to ensure that we're not on this live in the moment, living for pleasure program as professing believers, that we're not foolishly wasting our possessions on temporal things. We need to ask some questions. And I'm gonna say this super carefully here because I want this to be between you and God, between a couple and the Lord, between a family and the Lord, but no judgments, no judging one another in the room. Fair? No judging one another. In other words, um, You know, the kind of car you drove to church in today doesn't matter to me. The house that you're going to leave church to go back to doesn't matter to me. Where you went on vacation uh, this winter or where you're going on vacation this summer does not matter to me. It shouldn't matter to anybody in the room. Whatever your status is, okay, that's between you and the Lord. That's between you and him. So we're all just going to do some personal evaluation right now. Sound sound good? Just, just Just thinking about me. And you thinking about you, here's some questions. Uh, Could I do with less of a car than what I have? Could I do 
with less of a house than the one I currently live in? Do I need to take this vacation or would another less costly one be just as worthwhile? Could my wardrobe last a little longer? Do we really need to eat out as often as we do? Now that's just a sampling of questions. We could throw a dozen more there probably just where we're weighing out the decisions we're making about the resources, the possessions, the money that we have. And you can work out the questions that pertain specifically to you. We all have to wrestle this down. Asking the question, in essence, am I wasting my possessions? Am I wasting what God has given to me on temporal things? Well, that's one option. If you understand that nothing lasts forever, that's definitely one option. But here's now option number two, another possible fix. And that is to wisely invest your possessions in future glory. Wisely invest your possessions in future glory. Now, uh, this parable is uh, the most difficult parable to interpret in the book of Luke. It has several very unique challenges to it. There's some phrasing here that you're just wondering what exactly he's referring to. It's the strangest lesson, once you do unpack it, it's the strangest lesson Jesus ever teaches because he uses, listen, an unethical act by a dishonest person to teach a positive spiritual lesson to his children. Is that odd? Is that odd? That's a little odd uh, for the word of God. So here's this manager. He knows he's fired. He knows that he doesn't have anything uh, really to provide for himself, uh, having lost his job. And so he comes up with this scheme. Uh, look at it now at verse 4. He says, I've, I've decided what to do. I figured it out. So that when I'm removed from management, when I'm finally done my job, people are going to receive me into their houses. I'm going to have a place to go. That I'm not going to be left destitute out on the street. Somebody's going to take me in. I've got a great plan to make this happen. And his plan is to defraud his master. He's going to defraud his master in order to gain favor with the debtors and secure his future. So look at verse five. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And then he kind of goes through each of the debtors and he reduces their debt. He says, oh, you owe my master a hundred of this? Just cut that in half. That's what you have to pay back now. Now, how's the debtor gonna feel about him? Pretty awesome, right? I said, my debt cut in half. And again, we said, these are sizable debts. It's now cut in half. The other guy gets 20% shaved off of it. And each of the debtors come up, all of them are feeling super great about the manager who just cut all their debts. And so he's um, defrauding his master, though, through the whole thing. And when the plan was discovered, this is the strange part. Notice the master commended him for his scheme. The master commends him for ripping him off. So, like, I mean, how do we even make sense of all of this? I need Brad Ellis's help. Brad, could you just zip up here for a second, Brad? Thanks, buddy. Everybody, let's welcome Brad Ellis up here. Okay, Brad, hurry up, man. I know, I know you're around my age, but you can hurry up. So here we go. Good to see you, buddy. So Brad loves hockey. He's a big hockey guy. He's been a hockey coach. The Leafs won last you've, you've had, uh, we're not talking about the Leafs right now. 
Way to get that in, though. It's a good season for them. And Montreal won too. So there we go. This is actually going to set this up perfectly. A Montreal fan and a Toronto fan. And, um, but you've been a big hockey guy. Your kids have played hockey and, and all of that. And, and so in hockey, here's what goes on. And what I'm going to say next sounds a little sexist. I, I get this. But this is something. What's going on here with this with this um, master commending his manager for being dishonest. What's going on here is kind of a guy thing. It's a guy thing and it's related to respect. So here's what happens in a hockey game between two fighters. Not just any two guys who fight, but the guys who are like built to fight. Those guys. <laughs> if it's really happened, I'd lose. I just thought... <laughs> So in a, in a, in a, you know, where a team has an actual guy on the team who's the tough guy, who's the fighter guy, when those two guys go to battle, you have to understand that a hockey fight, I was going to show you a video, and it was actually a little bit too brutal to show on a Sunday, so we're just going to kind of act this out a little bit. But those guys would fight for maybe, honestly, a hockey fight might last 60 seconds, it might last 90 seconds, it never go past, goes past two minutes. And by the end of it, the two guys are absolutely bagged, exhausted. Right? Yes. So they're kind of wailing on each other, and then it's like they're in this... This is the way the fight ends. It ends like this. The two of them are just like this. And that's exactly right. You see what he did? What did you do? Do that again. He does this, right? And the two guys will pat themselves on the back, a little slap on the butt, a little, little like this, a little thumbs up to each other. Why? Why? Because they're warriors. And even though they've just beat on each other mercifully and it looks like they hate each other, by the end of the fight, what is there? There's nothing but respect. There's nothing but respect. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for coming. You see... See, and I, and I get that half the crowd, half the crowd just t totally does not get this, but all the guys get this. All the guys in the room get this. What the master is doing here is, he's beaten, he gets, he's beaten. He was played by this manager, but he respects the move. He respects what he did. And he kind of wishes a little bit. He admires his shrewdness. That's the word here. Word here. He, he admires his shrewdness. And as a businessman, he kind of thinks, you know what? I wish I had thought of that. I wish I had come up with that plan myself. Shrewdness, by the way, if we're just defining the word, means sharp-witted or to have acumen. It's applied wisdom in a very practical way. It's, it's cleverness, really, is what it is. And we today, when we use this word, we kind of have a bit of a negative spin on the word, but Jesus doesn't intend that negativity on it at all. That's not what's intended here in his message. He affirms the shrewdness through the parable and through his explanation, he affirms the shrewdness of the manager. Now we understand there's no redeeming characters in the parable. There's a, there's a wealthy, exploitive landowner. There's a lying and manipulative manager. There, there's these merchants who were complicit in and benefited from the debt reduction scheme. This is what we could call a coalition of crooks. Jesus doesn't commend the manager's dishonesty. So important that we hear this. He is not commending the manager's dishonesty. But he's commending his decisiveness, his boldness, his cleverness in the midst of the crisis as something that all disciples should be practicing. That's the takeaway for us. The crisis is nothing lasts forever. And because nothing lasts forever, we need to act shrewdly in this age in light of what's coming. That's what the manager did. 
And so when we have that, if we're understanding this crisis, if we understand the two possible fixes and we figure out this is the better way to go, that I'm going to invest wisely my possessions in future glory, then there are three ways, look at this next now, three ways to get this right. The first is this, to actually imitate the shrewdness of this world. To imitate the shrewdness of this manager. Now in verse 8, partway through, um, Jesus says this, and this is where the parable has just ended. The parable and the actual parable ends partway through verse 8. And then Jesus begins his explanation of the parable as he often does um, partway through verse 8 with this. For the sons of this world, unbelievers... Okay, just put unbelievers there. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, than believers are. They're making business decisions. Unbelievers, people of this world are making business decisions in order to make more money. They're being smart about that. They're planning for their future. They're working hard. They're investing wisely. They're using their resources to prepare for their future. The sons of this world, Jesus is making the point, are often more prudent and more skillful in their pursuit of worldly wealth than we as believers are in pursuing eternal wealth. That's the comparison that he's making. They're more committed to what they're doing in this life than we are in what we're doing for the next life. They're more diligent about that than we are. And if the world is so good in reaching for their goal, why aren't we just as passionate and diligent in pursuing our eternal goals? That's what Jesus is driving us toward. How can we be better at that? What are some practical ways that we can be smarter about our money here, knowing that we're investing beyond this life into eternity. Nothing new that I could really say here. Uh, we discussed uh, this whole topic far more extensively in last year's series called Jesus on Money. In fact, right this time of year, last year, you can search that on our website, Jesus on Money. Uh, here are uh, three uh, points that came out of that series, out of one of those messages that are going, that's going to help us be more shrewd about how we handle our money here. First of all, this, uh, diligently earn it. It is a good and godly thing to work hard. If you own your own business, work hard at it. Demand that your employees work hard for you. If you work for someone else, work hard for your boss. Work hard for the company. Be devoted to that. Uh, put in your hours, work diligently. Uh, that's a good and godly thing. Uh, secondly, responsibly save it. Invest uh, carefully. Uh, you should be planning for your retirement. You should have an emergency fund. Rather than putting things on a credit, you should be saving up for larger purchases. Um, just responsibly save it. Be a smart investor uh, as you save and as you invest. If it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Don't pursue it. Uh, be wise about these things. And then... Um, Diligently earn it, responsibly save it, wisely spend it. 
a lot I could say under this point, and I'm going to group a few things together here under spending it. This is the dispersing of our money, but let's start with saying that we should minimize our debt. We should manage our debt carefully, uh, especially things like mortgages. Um, we should eliminate our debt. We should not have consumer debt. We should have a budget and live within it. We should uh, spend less than we bring in. For sure, we should give generously. We should not, so appropriate for springtime, you should not pay more taxes than you have to. Just give Caesar what Caesar wants, but don't give Caesar more than Caesar wants. Okay, if, if Caesar says you can take a deduction, take a deduction and uh, keep the rest for uh, yourself or to invest in the kingdom of God. I like what Ron Blue says about this. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. And when we, when we do that, when we diligently earn it and responsibly save it and wisely spend it and we're minimizing our debt and we're being smart or shrewd about all of these things, what's happening is then we're leveraging more money for the things that God would set out before us in terms of, of the kingdom of God. And so uh, that's the first uh, part of that. Uh, three ways to get it right. Imitate the shrewdness of the world. Then secondly, uh, bless others with what you have. Bless others with what you have. Verse nine, the first part, I tell you, make friends for yourselves uh, by means of unrighteous wealth. This is what the manager did. He made friends for himself through unrighteous wealth. And we don't, I don't want to get too caught up in the idea of unrighteous wealth here. It's really just an expression for money. It's like saying cold hard cash um, or uh, the almighty dollar or moolah. You just use an expression for money. It's, it's unrighteous only in the sense that it's in contrast to eternal things. It's, it's what's here on this earth. And um, Jesus wants us to be shrewd about this. His disciples, he wants his disciples to act shrewdly, listen, on behalf of others. Act shrewdly on behalf of others. In other words, use your moolah to make friends, to bless others, and to bring about eternal rewards. Shrewdness is applied to gaining these eternal benefits, not temporal ones. And so again, we want to be like the manager in his cleverness, uh, not his crookedness, as Henry Alford said. And so who are the others that I'm supposed to bless? Again, this comes from the series last year, Jesus on Money. Um, let me give you three. Um, who am I to bless? Uh, first of all, you're supposed to bless your family. Bless your family. You're supposed to provide responsibly uh, for your family's needs. Uh, not spoiling, not setting them up to be entitled, not giving them everything uh, that they want. Setting an example for everything we're talking about here for your kids even discipling them in these things, providing for them in material ways. That's uh, your responsibility as a mom or a dad. And um, we need to bless our families. Secondly, help the hurting. We've seen this so much through Luke's gospel to help the poor, the hungry, the infirmed, those who are on the margins of society, those who are vulnerable, showing compassion with my dollars. That is part of the gospel that we would help those who have needs. So help the hurting. And then third, uh, no surprise here, fund the mission. Giving toward the ministry that we all share, 
uh, to reach uh, the lost, to seek and save uh, those who are lost, to share the gospel of Christ in this city, in this county, around the world, to plant churches globally. This is exactly why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. It takes funds to drive the ministry. God doesn't just drop a bag of money at the front door of the church every year in order for us to run this ministry, to do what we do. God uh, provides resources to you that he expects you to steward shrewdly, wisely, cleverly, and then to leverage as much as you can to fund the mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus came, he gave his life, he died on a cross, he sacrificed everything for this. And uh, we ought to be looking for all of the ways that we can fund the ministry, the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And then third, you see that third bullet there? I'll just write this down. A watch for the eternal ROI. Watch for the eternal return on investment. The latter part of verse nine, so that when it fails, I love that phrase, when it fails, is it gonna fail? It's gonna fail, okay? Nothing in this life lasts forever. When it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Again, he's, he's commenting on the parable. When, he, when it fails, when the manager loses his job, you're gonna do something shrewd here so that you're gonna be received into their homes, but you're, now the lesson for us is we're gonna be received into eternity as a result of acting shrewdly with the things that God has given to us that are temporal. The manager set himself up for life, life post-firing. He's curried favor with his master's debtors. He's ensuring himself a soft landing. When it fails, and it always fails, but if we get this right, as the followers of Jesus Christ, we get welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's what awaits us. And so wealth, money earned, possessions exist not for self-benefit, but for the blessing and benefit of others. And it's only when I distribute it, all of it, in every way, when I distribute it according to the values of God's kingdom, only then will my earthly wealth accumulate returns in heaven. That's what I'm going for, the return on investment, but an eternal one, not a temporal one. Well, that ends uh, the parable, which ended partway through verse eight, and then the latter part of verse eight and verse nine are kind of his comment on the parable, and then Jesus moves into another section here, 10 through 13, which is really four values undergirding all of this. Four things that we need to hear that are driving this parable and driving this lesson. And as the followers of Jesus Christ, we're gonna do what Jesus is saying here because of these values, because we believe these things. Value number one, God cares about the small stuff. And so should you. How many people here remember the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff? How many of you remember that book? And, and you know, that book had a great message, and it, to some extent, we don't want to sweat like little things that can sort of paralyze us, but when it comes to money, there are no small things. And we want to be responsible with what God has given to us, even in the smallest way. And this is what he says in verse 10. 
God cares about the small stuff. So should I. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And I think we get this, but you know, I think about uh, being a parent and, and how, you, how you raise your kids to be responsible enough that you can then let them go and go off and marry boys and stuff, you know? So, but, but before they get to that spot, you just know they're just little kids around the house and, and you want to teach them responsibility so that it's okay for them to go off and marry a boy someday. And, and, but it starts with this. You bring the groceries home and you get to the door and you kind of set them up at the door and, and you say, hey, Emily, could you like take this little grocery bag? Could you take this to the kitchen? And they grab the little grocery bag and they carry it back to the kitchen. And that's a little bit of responsibility, just a little bit. Okay, they're right there in the house, but it's a little bit. And then they can, they can kind of graduate and you might say, um, you know what, uh, it's garbage day and the trucks have just gone by and the, and the garbage bins, the recycle pails are down at the end of the street. Hey, hey uh, Emily, could you go down and could you just get the recycle bins and bring those back to the garage? And you're watching at the window. You're watching at the window, make sure she doesn't go off the property and onto the street, but she, you know, she goes and gets those recycle bins and takes them to the garage and puts them in the garage. And that's a little bit more responsibility. And, and then when she's got that locked down, you can, you can let her go down to the mailbox and to get the mail. And then, and then she can walk to school alone. And, and all of a sudden she's, she's driving out of your driveway with a car and she's going to college on her own and she's marrying a boy. <laughs> That was a year ago. I'm almost over it. (laughs) (laughs) Little by little, little responsibilities, little responsibilities that lead to bigger and greater responsibilities down the road. And and God's, as as our father, God is doing the exact same thing with us. He wants to see that we're faithful with the small things before he's gonna start giving us the big things. Faithful with a little, faithful with much. And um, that's value one. Value two, let's look at this. Salvation is authenticated by how you handle money. Salvation is authenticated by how you handle money. Verse 11, if then uh, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, again, that's just a general term for money. If you've, if, if, if you've not been faithful in that, in what I've given to you here, who will entrust to you the true riches and God's talking about us. Jesus teaches us. He's, he's saying to us that your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with Jesus is, listen now, proven to be legitimate by how you handle your money. If you can't get it right here, if you can't handle a few dollars that he gives to you that are going to burn up eventually, if you can't budget wisely, if you can't spend responsibly, if you can't care for your family, why would God entrust eternal things to you? See, when he speaks of true riches in the verse, he's pointing to all that we will have or can have in eternity. If, notice in the verse, if, if, if we're faithful. Now, would you look at your life right now? Would you examine the way you handle your finances, this measly temporal money? Would you look at that and say, I'm being faithful with this little thing? Because no matter how much money you have, it's just a little thing compared to the riches of eternity. It's just a little thing. Are you being faithful with that? Now pause for theological reminder here. You're not saved 
please hear me, you are not saved by how you handle your money, but you are proven to be saved by how you handle your money. In other words, the disciples of Jesus handle their money differently than non-believers. The kingdom values undergirding the life of a believer determine the way every single dollar is spent. Wealth has been given to us, David Garland said this, wealth has been given to us by God in trust to use in the service of others. And don't get caught up on the world, the word wealth, you just go, well, I'm not a wealthy person. Like wealth is relative to wherever you are. Whatever you have, that's your wealth. It's the amount of money you have, it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your possessions, it's what you have to work with. Wealth has been given to us by God in trust to use in the service of others, namely the advancement of the gospel in bringing new life and in spreading the compassion of Christ everywhere. That's what we've been given. Value number three. Everything you own actually belongs to God. You're the manager in the story. I'm the manager. I don't own anything. I've I've been given signing authorities. Okay, I've been given responsibility. I can negotiate contracts with that money, but it's not actually mine. It belongs to the Lord. Everything I own actually belongs to God, verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, in other words, in that which is God's, if you haven't been faithful in that which is God's, Who will give you that which is your own? Who's going to give you the inheritance? That's the cool thing. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we're we're, we're actually not managers. We're sons and daughters of the king. And, And we know he's given us responsibility. He's given us some things to handle. And and we're looking forward to an eternity where we're dwelling in his house. And God gives us an inheritance that's unimaginable. It's awesome to really think about what he's going to give us, that which is our own. And a reckoning is coming for it just as it came for the manager. I love uh, that Psalm 24, 1 says in a poetic way what we're talking about here, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Everything you own, everything I own, everything on this planet, every little bit of it belongs to the Lord. Finally, um, the fourth value. God won't compete with money for your affection. You can't miss the either or nature of what Jesus is saying here. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's not Jesus and It's just Jesus. The verse doesn't say no servant should as if it's a suggestion, but says no servant can, showing the impossibility of being gripped by God and gripped by money. Look at the verse, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
How many people here, you would just say, you know, at a, a certain point in my life, I carried around the King James Version or the New King James Version. How many people here? That was like your, your go-to Bible at some point in your life. And the, the word here for money would have been the word mammon, mammon. And that's actually right from the Greek, uh, mammonis. And it was uh, transliterated into English and it has a negative connotation to it. Money is neutral in itself, but when you have this word mammon, it suggests something a little darker, a heart gripped by it, gripped by the earning of it, gripped by the having of it, gripped by the spending of it, gripped by the desire for it, the accumulation of it. And God, listen, flat out, God will not compete with that. He will give you over fully to it. So that money or mammon will become your small g God. No matter what you profess with your mouth. Money will be your God. It's a stark warning. And there's no middle ground. At all. So all that said, those four values undergirding all of this, let's be shrewd in the kingdom sense of all of this about our money. Nothing lasts forever in this life. But when we follow the example of this unlikely character, this manager, investing our possessions in future glory, then we will have a future, an eternity filled with good things from our Savior. Amen? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I have no doubt having um, preached this message and studied this passage, and Father, indeed looking at the faces of those who have been listening, that this is a challenging word. It's a hard word given the world that we live in. A world where we so quickly measure ourselves by the success of others. A world where how we dressed and where we live and what we drive is what consumes our thoughts and our desires. Father, we know we need to be responsible in this life. And we know that you want us to get a much longer view of things to look beyond college funds and retirement to see all the way into eternity. God, you've called us as the followers of Christ to be radically different than the world around us. You've called on us to ask questions of ourselves that unbelievers don't ask. And in an unusual way with a an unusual story you've called on us to be shrewd in the handling of our dollars to bless our families to help the hurting to advance the mission for your glory and we would acknowledge in this moment it's all yours anyways so help us we commit again to be faithful managers of all that you've entrusted to us and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.